Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where AA members from around the world share their amazing stories of experience, strength, and hope. My guest on today's show is Bud S., a man of remarkable longevity and long-term sobriety. At 94 years old, his 44 years of sobriety is the perfect backdrop for the story of a life well-lived through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Though he started drinking later than most, his disease quickly branched off an alcoholic family tree that claimed the lives of his father and both sisters. Like many alcoholics, Bud built a successful career despite his growing addiction to alcohol. For a long time, he managed to keep his drinking confined to evenings and weekends with his wife and friends who shared in the glow of his good cheer. But as his drinking escalated, that glow turned into a glare from the harsh reality that he had become an alcoholic. Early attempts at rehab and short stints in AA were minimally effective as he allowed the differences in his drinking life to dominate similarities with other alcoholics. His downhill slide, abetted by more frequent binges and blackouts, culminated in expulsion from his home by his wife. Thoroughly licked by the disease, Bud came all the way in and sat all the way down in AA at the age of 49. He has never left. Bud's exceptionally long and illustrious life in sobriety contains all of the elements familiar to recovering alcoholics whose lives have been enriched by AA. His regular attendance at many meetings, combined with non-stop service work that includes sponsoring other men and participating in interventions, have made him an indispensable part of the groups he serves. His friendly disposition and welcoming spirit make it easy for newcomers and old-timers alike to comfortably join him in the center of the program. At 94, Bud's well-seasoned message of hope rings fresh and true on a daily basis. And though the audio quality of this interview was slightly affected by a glitchy Zoom, I believe you'll find Bud's story immediately enthralling and quite easy to listen to. So, sit back, relax, and enjoy the next hour of AA Recovery Interviews with my good friend and AA brother, Bud S. I'm Bud. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Bud. Thanks so much for joining me today on AA Recovery Interviews. It's really marvelous to see your face. Thank you, Howard. It's equally a pleasure for me and a great surprise, a delight. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to have you. You and I have known each other, I guess, over Zoom for the past couple of years via a meeting that we both uh, attend out of London. And I've just been captivated by your shares over that time and interested in having you as a guest on this on this podcast, because you're probably amongst all my guests, you may be the most senior. That's because you're... I'm 94. 94 years old. What's your sobriety date? August 27, 1977. So that gives you 44 years of continuous sobriety. Yes. Did you ever think when you first got sober that you'd see 44 years? Uh, I was lucky just to see the next day. <laughs> <laughs> Things must have been pretty rough when you got here, huh? Uh, I had a very, uh, would say, uncooperative spirit inside of me. So when I was uh -huh. in, initiated into AA by force, I didn't like it a bit. And so I really didn't take to the program. 
I went to meetings and then I'd drink and then I'd go to a rehab and then I'd come out of a rehab and be sober a month or two and then drink and be back in another rehab. And so I repeated no. that for about three years. You mentioned you were brought in by force. What was the force that made you come in? Well, I had an intervention, two members of Alcoholics Anonymous and my wife. And they said it would be a good idea if I went to the uh, uh, Jesuit retreat house and with an AA meeting in January. And this was in December, right at Christmas. And in the next month, I was in a, a retreat. And I went to that yeah. retreat pretty drunk. And I brought a couple of bottles of vodka with me. Oh, no. So I made a big hit. Was it an AA retreat or, or a Jesuit retreat? AA retreat. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. They've got one of those here in Houston at the Holy Name Retreat Center, and it's it's really marvelous. They're great friends of AA. That must have been pretty strange for you coming into recovery through a retreat. What was going on at that time? Well, I was, it was just past Christmas. It was the early weeks yeah. of January, and I knew I had to go because I yeah. had been pinned down by my wife and those two goody-goody AA members that I, I really liked to dodge, but I couldn't. And I went. I made a mistake mm -hmm. because I let them pick me up. I didn't have a car. So when they brought me home after two days of being in this restricted area of the Jesuit retreat house, and I knew a lot about the Jesuits because I went to a Jesuit college, but they didn't have anything to do with it, really. What I had to do was just bear this terrible retreat, this discipline that I didn't like. And then I went home and then I finally did get sober for about two months. And wow. I, started, so I was the, going to meetings. I met some very nice guys. I, I yeah. was not a very cooperative guy and I still had a job. I had a good job in a firm that I, where I was a partner. And um, yeah. I just when, kept for three more years I carried on with intermittent sobriety, rehabs, and drinking. That's uh, that's a tough time, especially after going to some AA meetings. What, what was running through your mind when you were sitting in that retreat house for the two days that you were there and you were listening to people talk about the program and AA recovery? I thought they that this was impossible. This was just not possible to exist without alcohol. Uh -huh. My life was uh -huh. not bearable without it. So you were what, about 50 at the time or younger? 49. Okay, so here you are, a 49-year-old man involved in successful business, and you find yourself in a retreat house with people talking about AA sobriety. That must have been pretty tough to bear. Well, I, I was being dogged by that group, too, because they knew I had a bottle, and they were... Oh, a couple of guys wanted them to be my sponsor. And I laughed at them and I thought, what in the heck yeah. are you calling on me for? I'm I'm past salvage. No more good for me. I'm I'm gonna stick to the booze. Would you have labeled yourself an alcoholic if you had labeled yourself at that time? I would have acknowledged and I did that I was an alcoholic. No question. When, in the years prior to going to that retreat, prior to that intervention, did you realize that you were an alcoholic? Probably a year or two. And I so tried very hard to shield it and hide it. 
So did you turn from a heavy drinker into an alcoholic or a binge drinker into an alcoholic? No, I was a heavy drinker, uh, but I didn't really ever start drinking until I was well into my 30s. And I had a good hmm. reason why I wasn't drinking. Then one is that I was dead broke. And I had spent two years in the hospital when I was 20 years old with tuberculosis. And I didn't drink any of that time. And when I got out of that tuberculosis sanatorium, I came back to uh, California where my mother and uh, dad had a home. Mm -hmm. I, I really didn't, I was so broke that I just had a bicycle and I went to work at a machine shop in a rather simple job. And then about mm -hmm. a, six months later, I got a job in downtown Los Angeles with a very reputable firm. And it was really a great boost for me. And I didn't drink because I was flat broke. And I, and I was in an atmosphere uh, at that point, really, I didn't know any many people because I'd been so isolated. And all my old buddies had gone off to Korea in the war in the National Guard. And I, when I got uh -huh. out, come, some of them got out of the service back from Korea. And I started having some good social contacts. But still, I was dead broke. I couldn't afford a car. And so I just, alcohol wasn't even part of my life. Huh. That's interesting. So you had an economic obstacle to becoming an alcoholic, didn't you? Oh, yes, very much. <laughs> I've heard a few other people that I've interviewed say that. And uh, as resourceful as we alcoholics are, Bud, did you attempt to find alcohol despite the fact that you had no money or uh, go places where alcohol might be served that you didn't have to pay for it? Or did you just not do it? I did not have the drive to find alcohol, but alcohol found me occasionally. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Whenever I get to a wedding or uh, anything, and I'd have a good time and I'd drink uh, maybe more than a lot of people would, but I wasn't drunk ever. I, I did not yeah. have any drinking problems that I was aware of then. My goodness. So the the Bud family tree, looking back into the previous generations, is there a, any kind of history of alcoholism that you can recall in your family of origin or your extended family? So rampant in my family. My father was a periodic alcoholic. He uh -huh. died at age 80, dead drunk. I loved my uh -huh. dad and he was periodic. He'd go for a year or two, never drinking. And the next thing you know, he'd be on a run. And I'd have to go get him out of a hotel and bring him home. And oh, it was a long haul. But on his last go, he died of a stroke at age 80. And then I had two sisters, one who was married to a doctor in Milwaukee. And she drank mm -hmm. and had a cirrhosis and died of cirrhosis of the liver at about age 52. And I had another sister older than I who uh, in her drinking was a terrible problem with alcohol. And uh, I never liked to drink around her because I knew she'd go off the deep end. She fell, cut her head, and bled to death. I had a grandfather who was an alcoholic. I didn't know oh, him I because didn't. he died long before I was ever born. Mm-hmm. 
I only knew one of my grandparents, but I, I know that mental illness, including depression, as well as alcoholism, were in my family. So with a father who died of alcoholism and two sisters who were affected greatly by it, did that influence your behavior around alcohol or around people who were drinking? Yes, it did. But it was not enough deterrent <laughs> because you see, by this time, I had proven to myself that I could drink properly. How had you proven that? I I I said, well, look, they weren't able to handle it, and I'm able to get away with it. And then finally, as, as time progressed, I realized I was an alcoholic. You mentioned about uh, having proven to yourself that you weren't an alcoholic. But you also said earlier that you didn't start until you were in your 30s to really start drinking. Yeah. I, first of all, the jobs that I had in downtown Los Angeles, which was a, a wonderful firm, and I was doing well, but I wasn't making very much money. That's when I got married at age 30. And I left that firm to join another one where I was made a partner. And that was the first time I ever had any money at all. And that was when I started buying alcohol and bringing it home. And my wife mm. was a good drinker. She drank plenty, but she wasn't a, 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 an abuser. And she was fun when she drank, and she encouraged it because it brought a lot of joy to her, and mm. the family seemed to be go going very well. I had a, a son, Joe, right away after we got married, and I had two daughters after that. And I think they were great. And I had a great home, bought a lovely home, and... I got the financing properly done, and I just had the world by the tail. So life was just fine with alcohol, even after what you had gone through having an alcoholic father and two alcoholic sisters. I couldn't understand why they couldn't drink like I did. So you were the generation or you were the person that it seemed to skip in your family, huh? Well, I didn't know it. I didn't analyze it to that degree. <laughs> I took it for granted because I didn't want to go too deeply into what the alcohol consequences could be. I get it. So when you got married when you were 30 and, and you finally had some money, did you just proceed to start drinking from that point or was it uh, a progression? Well, it was a progression because we had a very lovely little rental home. And I remember I had a client that was a winery. And they gave me a, a big supply of wine as a gift. And uh, so we'd have wine every now and then, but it was not a big thing. Uh -huh. It developed a little as time progressed. And in business, uh, I was in the insurance business and my clients liked to drink and I certainly found the ones that did. So I encouraged mm -hmm. them to have a drink with me. And as I went through my early years in business as a partner in a firm. I had a lot of freedom, had some money, and I had uh, access to attractive things like a golf club, developed a lot of really comfortable things that finally get out of hand. Yeah. And in those days, those perks of the job, the three martini lunch and the country club memberships, those were pretty common back in those days, weren't they? Oh, everybody. I When I was working in downtown L.A., early and I was broke, the guys they worked for, half of them were drunk all the time. 
you got married at 30 and you were living, is it safe to say kind of a country club uh, executives kind of life at that time? Well, it was the beginning of it because it was the first time I'd had any money at all. And I, uh, after I'd become a partner in this firm, uh, I was encouraged by my other partners to join a golf club, which I did. And I used it very, mm -hmm. very, uh, care I, I really enjoyed it. I did it. And I did a little bit of drinking there, but not much. I was not a hound around the bar. I was never known mm -hmm. in that club as an alcoholic until the end of my drinking. And then they all knew it. Hmm. So that was at 30. You got sober at 49. Right. So we're talking about 19 years worth of progressive drinking. At, at what point did you notice that you were drinking more than you had previously? At what point did you really notice it? Okay. I, I started going to London on business. So I'd be alone in London and I started drinking in London pretty heavily one time. And I woke up the next morning and I thought, my God, I've I've drunk so much that I've missed the whole point of being here. So I finally, you know, I really got sober from that. And I went home and got back to work. And I, I really always worked hard. I never was a loafer. And I had good yeah. business. I worked very hard to keep my clients happy. My clients uh -huh. liked me. And I had yeah. a few pet clients that liked to drink. So I'd have an every now and then a little assignation with a drinker. And that would be a lot of fun. And I remember one time I was in a business meeting and one of the fellows from another insurance company was there and the client was there and the guy from the insurance company wanted a drink. And he, after we had three drinks, I said to myself, this is not good. We got to end this deal now because I don't want to lose this business. And so I made a rule then that I wouldn't do that again. I wouldn't go to lunch with a client and drink too much. And I never really did. Mm. When I was doing my drinking and my heavy drinking, I was pretty solo. I was drinking it. I, you know, I always, if I didn't have a case of whiskey in my uh, bar, I'd be, I was kind of frustrated thinking I'm not prepared for life. And I love to drink good old cabin snow whiskey. And that's what I was enjoying. And, ruining my life. And then, and we had a beach house too. And that was a nice reprieve. I did a lot of beer drinking down there. It was in the summertime. And, and I love the beach and I love the beach life. I didn't have a boat. I didn't want a boat because mm -hmm. I knew that would have been more trouble than worth. I had a pier so I could have kept a boat, but I didn't, uh, you know, I could just see my behavior began to slip badly in my being prompt and correct and on duty, but I always got up and always got to work on time. And the last two years before I went to A, I started having a morning drink. And then yeah. I knew I'd, I'd gone over the, the uh, hill, I was done. So it sounds to me like you were what we term a functional alcoholic for a number of those years, was it just by sheer will that you stopped drinking at business luncheons or did you have the occasional drink along the way and you just knew when to stop? Well, occasional drink, but I certainly avoided luncheons where there would be drinking. 
I didn't want to get into one more bad uh -huh. habit. And I knew that that was trouble. Yeah. You mentioned solo drinking. Was that at home then in the evenings and on the weekends for you? At home, yes. Was that ever a problem? Did you drink to excess at home? Yes, because my wife finally said to me, you got to stop this. And that's when the lid blew off because I, I couldn't stop. And finally, she said to me after numerous visits to rehabs, she kicked me out. And I had no resistance to her order to leave because I knew I wasn't able to meet up to that standard that she was demanding and deserved. When did she do that? When did she kick you out? It was about two years before I got involved with AA. Okay. So you mentioned numerous rehab treatment centers. What was there about those places that you resisted? Or Well, first of all, I had a very low respect for Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought it was oh, just, okay. just a lot of jumbo. And I didn't want to, you know, I, I had that awful drive in me that how do you live without alcohol? That would be mm. like taking your soul right out of your system. I didn't want to live without alcohol. I couldn't. Mm -hmm. I, I just, life was not worth it without alcohol. That's how badly it had infected me. Was it starting to get in the way you mentioned suiting up and showing up to work, but was it uh, affecting you, the quality of work that you were doing? Uh, did it spill over into the workplace for you? No, I was always a good worker and I had good help and I always got things done. I never lost to clients for neglect. Uh, obviously, I lost to clients for in competitive situations, yeah. but I never had a problem with keeping them. Because basically they liked me a lot and I was nice to them and I did a lot of nice things for them. And um, as I got to the end, yeah. after my wife had kicked me out and I was no longer had a beach house, no longer had a lovely home and uh, I lost kind of my self-respect. Yeah. I remember standing outside of the apartment, a two-story walk-up apartment with a hot stove and a microwave and I golf clubs in one corner, skis in another corner. And I thought, oh my God, is this all there is? What and a that lifestyle. was when I began to understand that I yeah. needed to do something. Yeah, I, wasn't I guess ready you needed, yet, but I knew you weren't I needed. Ready. So you knew that you needed help at that point, but you weren't quite ready to embrace the AA program as the way to get it. And here's how I finally got it. Yeah. Uh, I had taken many trips to London on business mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. the stuff I was dealing with required to be in the London market. So I went on yes. an, uh, a trip to London. I had been working on an oil company for a long time, mm -hmm. and it was very hard to ensure their barges in the Black Sea. And I finally got a place in London, but I had to go to London to finish it. And I'd been working on it for a year. So I finally got it done. And I went into London alone. I didn't have anybody with me. Uh, I spent two days finalizing the deal with the underwriters, getting the deal set, mm -hmm. done, and whatever. 
I could not believe how well I felt because it was a very profitable piece of business mm -hmm. and sure. it was an accomplishment that I had uh, finally finalized after a couple of years. As I walked out of that office, I went down the street to get on the underground and I always tell this story. As I walked to the train, this pub loomed up. Beautiful English pub. And on it, there was a sign that said, Welcome, bud. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> and I went into that pub with an absolute certainty that I was only going to drink ginger ale. And I uh -huh. got in there, and it was about three in the afternoon. Nobody was uh -huh. in there except two men in white jackets behind the bar. And the uh -huh. man looked at me and he said, Sir? And at that point, I said, I'd like a ginger ale, please. And the overhead bottle of vodka, I said, oh, yes, and put some vodka in that, please. Make it a double. Uh -huh. And I, when I was in a bar, I always gave the sign a double. The reason why they didn't trust the audibles, I wanted the visuals. And so I drank a couple of drinks there, felt a million bucks, uh -huh. went back to my hotel, went to the theater that night, and I went out at halftime at the theater at an intermission. I drank, and I was in a complete blackout. And I had never been in a blackout yet. All the drinking you had done over those years, you hadn't blacked out? Nope. And this cab driver, a lovely fellow, took me back to my hotel. I even remember mm -hmm. that he took me to his home and tried to sober me up. And then he took me off and dropped me off at my hotel. And the next thing you know, the morning after that, I was given notice at the hotel, the Barclay Hotel, a lovely hotel. Mm -hmm. I was kicked out. I went to another hotel that they'd put me in, and they threw me out. And then I went to British Air, and the woman at the desk, a stern woman, said, Sir, we will take you to Los Angeles, but you may not order a drink. Now, I remember that vividly, all of that, as if huh. I were living it. And it stuck, because I knew she meant business, and I needed to get home, and I did. And when I got home from that trip, I re don't remember the flight home. I remember really? getting on the plane. I remember getting off the plane. But the whole flight went by mindlessly. You were still blacked out from the night before? I was. They wouldn't serve you on the plane? No, they saw that I was drunk. Uh-huh. So they left you alone in your blackout? I just stayed in my chair. I don't think I did anything. That's a long flight. Mm -hmm. I must have done something, but I don't mm -hmm. remember any of it. So now I woke up from that terrible mess. I was so worried about having, I, I lost my job and God, I mm. didn't know what was going on. And about a week after I got sober, I was back in the office feeling well and doing my things. And I mm -hmm. thought to myself, I haven't had a desire to drink. And that was when I discovered my desire to drink had vanished. I mm. no longer had any compulsion to drink. That was God's what? gift. I called myself the ancient warrior. I wore out my welcome 
with booze. And it was such a wonderful thing to realize. And then I started getting good AA advice because now with no desire to drink, I had a uh -huh. rather enjoyable time in AA. I'll bet you did. You had that spiritual experience, would you call it, when you had the no desire to drink? It had or to be a just... spiritual experience, but it didn't come to me as if it were some vision. Or I just thought, you know, I don't want to drink. I'm not going to test it. I'm just going to go along with it. It was not like my normal behavior. I just yeah. didn't yeah, I... want to drink. Yeah, I get that. So the thought about no desire to drink kind of came from within without any real prompting at all and without having to hit this horrible bottom. You just decided I'm done and you stayed done. You knew about AA from previously. What were your feelings about going back to AA? Well, I was a bit timid because mm -hmm. the guys that I did know in AA thought, oh, here he comes again, another loser. He'll be in and out of oh. here like a yo-yo. Several of them made remarks to me about that, and I didn't take it too well, but I didn't react in any way uh, aggressively against them. I just thought, well, they got good reason to call me a, a slipper or a repeater. Yeah. And uh, after about uh, two months, I dusted off a couple of guys who wanted to be my sponsor, guys mm -hmm. that I didn't really respect. Mm. Maybe I was being a little snooty, yeah. or maybe I just wasn't willing to give in. But finally, I met a guy, and here was a really wonderful story. I met a man mm -hmm. named Lou, and Lou mm -hmm. was a brick in the meeting that I went to. He was sober uh, for many years, and... I really liked him mm -hmm. because I had a good respect for him. I started behaving mm -hmm. better. I knew I couldn't be a wise guy with him. He was, yeah. he was too much of a gentleman, too much of a regular fellow. And I, I liked the way he operated. And yeah. he always said to me, bud, you don't need to shoot your mouth off. You've said enough. Just be yeah. quiet. He said, there's a lot about AA that you're going to have to learn, but one day you're going to find out that the best way to handle AA is keep your mouth shut, do the right thing, and do it when you say you're going to do it. He said, if you stick to that rule, doing the right thing and doing when you say you're you're going to be fine. Yeah, that was that sounds prophetic. And you know, earlier when you said that they were mean, that that there were some people who made some snide and mean remarks, I was thinking, how mean is that? But then you said a few minutes later about being a wise guy and I deserve some of that. Yeah. You, yeah. you, you get what you deserve. And anyway, yeah. Howard, I loved Lou. I loved him yeah. so much. I, he, he would invite me to, he loved to go to the, the races. Mm -hmm. He was a, he owned a racehorse and he took me to lunch there a couple of times and he, he made life quite pleasant. And because he was such a gentleman, Mm -hmm. uh, I just looked at him and I thought, you know, he's got all the moves that I like. He's a kind man. He's a good mm -hmm. man. He's got a good church deal. And I like what he does. Mm -hmm. uh, and I like the way he treats people in AA. And yeah. uh, so... He became your sponsor at that point? Yes. And then 
he said to me one day, you know, bud, you're going to have to do some work and I, you're, you're not doing anything. I said, well, Lou, what do you mean? I go to meetings. He said, no, that's uh -huh. not what I mean. He said, I want you to become involved in the running of a meeting and I want you to be involved as a sponsor and really dig into the AA program. And he said, and make it fun. Hmm. And I said, well, I've not found any fun in it yet. And he <laughs> said, well, you will if you work at it. And I, he said, you got to do that, bud. It just makes your life more pleasant. Yeah. And I want you to how, do that. How long had you been sober by the point that he had said that to you? Oh, I suppose uh, maybe a year. So for the first year, you really weren't doing any of the real work. No, and, I wasn't were... doing I never did the steps. I never did the promises. I just went to meetings. Did Lou, did Lou confront you with that? Or did he suggest to you along the way, you really need to start doing the steps. You ought to do a fourth step and a fifth step. He was very sly. He said, What's, what have you done in your life that really bothers you the most? This uh -huh. is the fourth step, obviously. And I had such confidence in, and I liked him so much, I had no trouble telling him. And he said, well, listen, bud, get out of the... the uh, the doldrums. I want you to be happy, joyous, and free, like it says in the book. And uh -huh. he said, I want you to sing a song. I said, what do you mean a song, Lou? And he said, <laughs> well, you don't have to sing if you don't want to, but if you want to and you sing it well, you might enjoy life more. Well, I wanted to skip that. He said, promise me now, if I sing it to you, you will sing it back. You'll do it, and it'll make you feel a whole lot better. And I, I lied and said, oh, all right, I will. And then he said, uh -huh. now, mind you, I'm not going to sing it if you don't sing it right back. I said, okay. And he said, here's how it goes. I'm going to change my way of living, and if that ain't enough, I'm going to change the way I strut my stuff. My walk will be different, my talk and my name. Nothing about me is going to be the same. Nobody wants me when I am this way. There'll be some changes made today. There'll be some changes made. Bravo, bravo. Uh, and you know, Howard, I took to that. I thought, that's you know, amazing. doing that's a lot of fun. Expelling wow, that's, that's... all of that good energy. Yeah, that is so cool. I mean, I've known people in the program over the years. There was one guy here in Houston who, whenever he led a meeting, he would always sing part of the, his share. And it was, it was so memorable and it was so moving. So you learned that song pretty quickly then after that, I'll bet. And I sing it almost every day. Oh, not, not quite, but almost. Every time I got on the podium, I sang it, hmm. and people loved it. I went to one meeting in Los Angeles. I sang it, and they all stood up and said, more, let's have it one more time. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that does a lot for your ego, but it makes also great fun to be part of that entertainment. I'm not trying to be a, a, a songwriter, or a song, I mean, a, a songster. I'm just trying to be a good member of the program. And I, I have enough, uh, let's say, ease in dealing with success 
and with compliments. I don't need any more. Wow, what a wonderful story. And what a great sponsor to offer that to you at a point at which you probably really needed it, huh? He hit me right when I was vulnerable. I didn't want to do it because yeah. I'd never never heard of what do you mean sing? And first of all, I didn't like speaking at meetings. I'd only done it once or twice. Well, he said to me, here's a good chance for you to sing it at the meeting. And he, he was the leader of the meeting, and he called me up and gave me a 15-minute pitch and told me to sing. Oh, no. What were you feeling <laughs> at the time? It what, how did you feel? I felt wonderful. I thought, God, yeah. I'm a member now. Wow. That really Sorry. made me feel like I was a member. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on BigBookPodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. And we're back. So he put you on the spot with something that most people have never, ever done in an AA meeting, and that is sing in front of the group. And that made you feel more of a part of AA than anything else, I'll bet. Oh, yeah, I did. Right away, I was solid AA. Wow, what a turning point for you. Yeah, you don't realize how one little thing like that can change your whole life. I, I The other day I had, uh, the first time I went to a regular meeting, two mm-hmm. weeks ago, in a little town near her, it was an afternoon meeting, and I was mm-hmm. the speaker. The girl said to me, well, we wanted to speak for 45 minutes. And I said to her, well, that may be a little bit too much for you. I'll say I'll give you a good message, but it doesn't necessarily take 45 minutes. A good half hour, people get sick of you after that. <laughs> and so I went to that meeting, and a, and a girl came up to me, and she said, Oh, bud, I haven't seen you since my very first meeting at this church. And I didn't know who she was. And she uh-huh. said, You were the speaker at my first ever meeting, that was 16 years ago. And she said, will you sing your song to us? I said, you bet I will. Well, you were planning to do that anyway, weren't you? Well, I was going to give them the, the song just because I enjoyed doing it. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. But anyway, you know, Howard, I have a lot of fun in the program. Yeah, I'll bet you do. I can see it in your face and in your eyes and just in that big, broad smile of yours, how important that was to your happiness in the program. You connected with the program early on, thanks to your sponsor. What did the next number of years look like in your support? Well, somewhat is dependent upon if we go back to regular meetings again, which we will. When we go back to regular meetings, I will be pretty attentive to that. Right now, for instance, I go to a Sunday meeting in Los Mm -hmm. Angeles, Zoom, I go to the Monday night meeting in London. Mm-hmm. I go to Tuesday night. And we have mm-hmm. a stag meeting. And usually mm-hmm. we have 
we're at the restaurant, we had dinner every Tuesday night, and mm-hmm. we'd be oh, maybe as many as 15. Hmm. Now that we're only doing it on Zoom, we usually have eight or nine or 10. Then I'm uh, in another meeting on uh, Friday, and so I get about four or five meetings a week. But I That's would nice. like very much to have the old meetings and come back. I go to a couple stag meetings, actually three or four stag meetings a week, one of which at our height, we were getting 100 to 125 men. And slowly but surely, since the church that we have it in reopened, today I went to that meeting, we had 85 men in that meeting, and we have a way to broadcast the Zoom at the same time. So uh, a dozen guys were on Zoom being able to talk back and forth into the meetings. How soon did your sponsor get you involved in actually working through the steps? Well, rather quickly after <laughs> when he gave me the song, I was mm-hmm. his prisoner. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, he, he never was one that would sit down pencil and paper and do the steps. Uh-huh. But we'd go through it verbally, uh-huh. and he was such a pleasant man to be with. You know, he really knew what he was talking about. And he said, you don't need to get out your pen and pencil and write all this stuff down. Just do it. And he had the other thing. He said, no matter how badly you feel and how much of a pickle you're in, no matter what the problem, just remember that it's not what you deserve. It's what God gives you. I, I'm a lifelong Catholic and my Catholic religion means a good deal to me, but I must say sure. I was not a very good attendee at church in my drinking days because I wasn't paying attention to anything really important. But yeah. I realized I sit down at my desk where I am right now every day and write down a gratitude list. And that mm-hmm. gratitude list is that I have a loving God. I'm mm-hmm. a Catholic. Mm-hmm. That I have family. I have friends. I have freedom, I have joy, Mm -hmm. and that is one that I underline, joy, Mm -hmm. and then I have health, and then I talk about my children. And I have a son named Joe, who's uh, 62 or 3 now. Joe just sold the business that I started years back. He is sober 32 years. Wow. Do you go to meetings together? Yeah, we we go to the... night meeting, the Zoom meeting, and he runs it. And Joe and I are really good friends. We get along very well. I'm a stalwart in that meeting because of my time. And I just happened on to that meeting by a total accident. And it was a dinner meeting at a restaurant. Mm -hmm. The meeting, the first time I ever went, and I've been going to that probably for, oh, 15 or 16, 17 years. I don't know how many, a long time. And it's a wonderful meeting. It's solid mm-hmm. AA. All the guys are in the program doing the right thing. You know, I'm curious. It sounds to me like you're, you're so engaged in AA, and it sounds like it's, it's been a huge part of your life. I wondered uh, if you could tell me a little bit about some of your service work over the years, including sponsorship and doing things at meetings and maybe things out in the community. What, what does that look like in your life? Well, I did a couple of... Uh, meetings where I was the uh, leader of those, you know, for, uh, I did one Sunday meeting, just put a lot of time in it. 
and main, mainly my time in AA has been helping newcomers. That's what I really landed on. Look, uh, there are a lot of people that you waste your time on in life, but what could be better than helping a needy, drunken person? Uh, right now, I got a guy on a thread, and I'm afraid that he's going to fall because uh -huh. he isn't doing what he's supposed to be doing. And uh, another friend of mine is kind of a wimpy guy, and he is telling me what he deserves. And I always quote what Lou Rowan said to me, you don't get what you deserve, you get what God gives you. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. I know a number of men, older men, who are not that outgoing to the new men. And they, because they've had the experience before of trying to sponsor men and it not keeping the man sober. So they choose not to do it. What would you say to a guy like that? Well, uh, you, you can say you're shorting yourself because you have so much to give and so much to get. And the reward uh -huh. for you will be far greater than any effort you make to help the other guy. It will redound yeah. upon you as a real godsend blessing. When you help others, you are the obvious recipient of God's blessing. And until you yeah. realize that, you may or not expose yourself, but don't think that guy isn't worth it. It's not about that guy. It's who are you? Are you worth it? So a friend of mine was sponsoring a new guy a while back who uh, was making a number of half-hearted attempts at sobriety through AA. And he ended up killing himself. He ended up committing suicide. And my friend was was crestfallen about it. He was pretty upset. Uh, I reminded him about what you just said about the gifts to the man who's doing the sponsoring. But have you had those kind of situations over the years, and how have you dealt with them? Well, I went to the, the hospital two months ago. Uh, a friend of mine there that I'd known for years was dying of cirrhosis. I went in and held mm. his hand for a little bit, and said, he said, oh, I've done I so many bad things and my life is so worthless. I said, just do you realize how much you've helped me hmm. to help me to appreciate what I've got? And thank you. I will be forever grateful to you for giving me that privilege to help you in your worst and most dire time. And he died hmm. about two days or three days later. Not when he died, but I held his hand when I was there with him. Yeah, that's beautiful. And, you know, it was a nice, touching thing. I think about him. Uh, I was at a golf club yesterday. A friend of mine was there, Roger. And Roger's mm -hmm. a member of the program. I said, Roger, it's good to see you looking so well. And Roger's probably 25 years younger than I am. He said, well, you don't realize how much good I've gotten out of the program. I said, oh, yes, I do. I got better than you. And then he said to me, remember George? And I said, George was the best-looking guy I ever saw. He looked like mm -hmm. Cary Grant, and he was the club champion on the golf. And guess uh -huh. what? George drank himself to death. Uh -huh. He died about six months ago. And there was a guy that was a really nice, 
gentleman, a sweet guy, but mm -hmm. he just couldn't get over the booze. And mm -hmm. I've, I've known several others. One time I got a call from the manager and he said, would you help me? And I said, well, I'll try. What, what is it you wish? He said, we're having a member with some problems with alcohol. Would you talk to him? And I said, before I do that, I want to have an outline of what it is you have in mind. He said, well, can't mm -hmm. you just try to talk him into behaving himself and doing <laughs> it? I said, uh, let's get down to brass tacks. If I'm to talk to him, I want mm -hmm. to know what happened, what provoked this meeting, and what the penalty is. What's the future? He said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, you can just talk hot air to this guy, and he'll never change. But if you lay down the law, he might respond. So he huh. said, what do you have in mind? And I said, first thing you got to do is tell him he's suspended from the club for a year. He said, Jesus, that's a tough one. And I said, a lot tougher on him than it is on you, but it'll make his life better. And the other thing is, if he continues to drink, mm -hmm. he can never in his life have another drink in this clubhouse. And mm -hmm. he said, really, that's pretty severe. And I said, run it by your board. Let him know. Call me back. He said, the board said, that's fine. So I called him up and I said, do you realize uh, that the club manager called me and asked me to have a meeting with you? And he said, what about? And I said, I think you know. He said, well, let's meet at my house. And I said, no, let's meet in the club. And mm -hmm. so we went to the bar, sat down, and this is about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. So we sat down in the bar. There wasn't anybody in there. And I said, do you realize that you threw a drink at a young girl in this clubhouse? Oh, he said, oh, yeah, but she provoked it. I said, wait a minute. You threw the drink. I'm not going to debate what happened. It's what did happen and why it happened. And I said, obviously, you were feeling pretty saucy, and you threw a, a drink at this young girl. And it, and it got on her dress, and it got back. Everybody saw it. I didn't see it, anything about it. As far as I'm concerned, it's completely nonsense for you, an adult, to be acting like that around young people or anybody else. Here are the rules. No more drinking in that clubhouse. One-year suspension. And if you want to stick to those rules, come back in a year and you'll be a member. He said, well, I don't know if I can do that. And I said, it's not up to me. It's up to you. Well, Howard, two years later, he was still in there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sober? Yep. I'll tell you another one. I got a guy into a rehab, took him some real doing. Because yeah, yeah. he was a high-powered guy. He had an airplane. He had a driver. Uh -huh. He was a big deal. And he yeah. let you know it. His wife wanted an intervention and wanted it right away. And I said, well, I have to get one because that's where he ought to go. And she said, well, you better hurry up. So I called. They sent me a guy who's a tough little guy. And he came to... And we jumped this guy in his den at about 5 o'clock, just about cocktail time. You know, this is a guy that had everything. The, the boat, 
the claim that the works. I said, it's time for you to recognize that your drinking has really overtaken your life, and we're not here to punish you. We're here to try to help you get better. And he got really difficult. I said, well, talk to this gentleman. And this was a guy from a rehab, started talking to him. And he said, let me just tell you, mister, I don't negotiate with drunks. (laughs) (laughs) I laughed so hard, I could hardly stand it. I said, God, that's a good line. (laughs) And guess what? You went to a rehab. I I don't negotiate with drunks. God, that's a good line. Did he stay sober after that, bud? Uh, he's been out about six months. To my knowledge, yes. Do you see him in meetings or is he, uh, that's just all you knew about him at that point? Do you know, uh, Howard, so many people get a good start and then it just kind of fades away. Why do you think that is? Well, it's because no one puts the pedal to the metal. You gotta have, it's like being in the army. They put you mm-hmm. into the, mm-hmm. as a recruit, they put you into boot camp. And we in AA ought to be attending to people. If we take on a guy who's a brand new guy, we got to have some discipline. Mm-hmm. And not it's not punishment. It's just, here's how it goes. Here's what you do to get started. Here's what you do to get sober. Do you want to get sober? Well, mm-hmm. yes, I do. But I know you want it very much, but you got to want the one in a lot or you'll never get there. I'm, I kind of get right in their face. I've probably done a dozen interventions, mainly because, you know, people don't have any sources. Well, my job is, look, don't prolong this. Let's get to it. Funny one, one time it was a Sunday morning. A woman called me the night before, and she said, my husband, Victor, got arrested. And uh, no, it was two nights before he got arrested. And he's going to get out of jail this morning. And I want you to do an intervention on him. Uh And I said, well, I got to line up some people. So I lined up his son-in-law and I lined up his neighbor and about a half a dozen people. One of whom wouldn't go because she didn't want to confront him. It was Mm, too, that was too harsh. I said, well, that's okay. Don't come. So we get to the guy's house nine in the morning. And he comes out of the house to get the newspaper. And he <laughs> looks at me and he said, oh, we're having an intervention. I said, well, Victor, <laughs> how did you know that? He said, remember, we had one a week ago for my daughter. <laughs> and these were some of the same people. And I didn't know. I hadn't been in that one. So we got into the meeting and his wife had been a really heavy, heavy drinker. So we Mm -hmm. got into the intervention, and I said, well, Victor, you know why we're here. We're having an intervention. But it's not just for you. It's for your wife, Eve, too. And she really got mad at me about that. And I said, you know, Eve, I don't give a damn how mad you can get at me because I'm never going to hurt you the way alcohol has hurt you. There's nothing about what I have to say is being vicious or uh, unfriendly. I want you to take care of yourself as much as you want Victor to take care of himself. Well, we got them both into a rehab and 
And Victor, Victor finally, he wouldn't go at first, but he went uh -huh. a week later and he uh, died about four years later sober. So you you said you've done about a dozen of these uh, interventions. It sounds very much like the old-fashioned 12-step work that it talks about in the big book. Well, that's what it was. Something, it's almost become a lost art because of all the treatment centers that are out there. That's why I haven't done one lately. Everybody's got a treatment center, some of which are terrific and some of which are really not. Mm-hmm. Some of my older friends, I'm talking about men who got sober and women who got sober in their 50s, 60s. I've known people who've gotten sober in their 70s, and they put some time behind them, uh, 8, 10, 12, 14, 15 years. And every now and then they'll pine about they wish they had gotten sober earlier in life and how much different their life would have been had they not wasted those years and instead had the gifts that they have now sooner. Do you ever think about that? And, and what do you tell yourself uh, whenever you hear that sort of thing? Well, uh, I'm, I'm pretty practical. I say, we get what we deserve and what we need. And I didn't deserve sobriety. I needed it. Mm. And finally, it was given to me and I did not reject it. But I have to say, here I am at 94, uh, other than the fact that I have a bad sciatica leg, I can mm -hmm. do pretty much anything I want to. I have a, a Rick lives with me because my son Joe wants me to have a driver. But on the other hand, I feel just great. I don't have any health problems that I'm aware of. And uh, a couple of years ago, I was pretty sick. Uh, I had a heart surgery, but I'm okay now. And I feel good. I feel strong and I feel grateful. <clears throat> so I'm looking at the future with, a, with expecting joy, abundance, and uh, a good spiritual life. Yeah, that sounds like a really exceptional way to walk through life with that kind of attitude. And not being regretful about not having gotten the gifts that you've gotten sooner in life. Well, that's just a waste of time. If only I'd gotten sober sooner, I would have. And you feel in the, that's all nonsense. Well, that's what I find most inspiring about our, our talk today, Bud, is that these are the kind of things that I can take with me as I'm talking to people who are doing that kind of uh reminiscing and wishing they had gotten it sooner. I can talk about my friend Bud said uh, something about deserving versus needing versus wanting and that sort of thing. And, you know, you, you pretty much embody that whole, that whole thing because here you are at 94, you're still actively involved. And my guess is that even if you weren't in such great health, you would still be involved. Is that a fair assumption? Yes, because I'd be, to be honest, Alcoholics Anonymous has become the most important part of my life. It's given yeah. me my whole life. I, I wouldn't have anybody to <clears throat> pal around with if I didn't have AA. At, at this stage in my life, I only have two old-time friends. One's mm. in Santa Barbara and one's in uh, uh, Laguna Beach. And they're, one's 94 and one's 93. And what mm. I say is, 
these are guys I grew up with. They're not alcoholics. Mm -hmm. They're really good guys. But I don't see them other than occasionally. I don't have friends. That I go over to the gym here. Every once in a while I see somebody in there and they look at me and I say, yes, I'm still alive. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I have a friend, a friend of mine who we lost. Actually, it was last year. He was 98 years old when he passed and he had 46 or 47 years of sobriety. And for the longest time, he was the treasurer of this noon meeting that he would go to every day until the point at which he he went pretty much completely blind. But he was one of those guys who would say, you know, all of my friends have come on this earth and they've left this earth. If I didn't have my friends in AA, I would have no one. And I thought that that was really uh, touching and a really prophetic thing to say. But it sounds to me like AA has been a big, big part of your life. You couldn't replace the joy I've had in AA with anything else. Yeah. In closing, Bud, let me ask you something. When you meet somebody who's brand new in the program, especially a younger person, being as uh, long a member of AA and as old as you are, how do you get through to those people or do you leave that to other people to to talk with them? Well, you know, people kind of seek their own level. If I see a young guy, really young, I say, uh, are you having any fun? And your life running well or are you just having a miserable time? (laughs) And then they kind of, you know, they'll look down at their shoes, try to come up with an answer. You know, there's time to quit being a, a downsayer. Get yourself a good atmosphere and stop feeling sorry for yourself because no one gives a damn about how sorry you are. They do give a damn about whether you're sober. Mm. No one wants to hear the blues. Yeah, of course not. If AA wasn't a pleasant and enjoyable place to hang out, I wouldn't go. I mean, I love AA because not only have I been able to stay sober, but it's a big part of my social life. It's a big part of my, just of my being. And I had a guy once, Bud, who said to me, and I was sponsoring him. He said, okay, Howard, so uh, when can I kind of cut back on this AA thing and start in, and li- start living my real life? I said, this is your real life. Everything that you're out there chasing to replace what AA is giving you will not do it. You need to stick here. And uh, he stayed sober. He's still sober to this day. But he was one of those guys who thought, okay, I've done my time in AA. Now let me move on in my life. Howard, that's so prominent in the minds of young starters. When am I going to get out of this deal and, you know, Get rid of the hair shirt <laughs> and just get back to living. Yeah, I, I remember years ago I was in a meeting when I was brand new. And I'm, I've been sober 34 years now. But uh, uh, early on, there was, a, there was a, a guy who came to that meeting. He only would come once a year to get his birthday medallion, his birthday chip. Just once a year, we'd see him. He didn't go to any other meetings except that one meeting. And I remember thinking to myself, as clear as day, I thought to myself, boy, I can hardly wait until I only have to go to one meeting a year. (laughs) And you know what changed that? 
going to AA and getting in the middle of the program like you, like you. And my, my, my hope and prayer is that if I make it through life to enjoy my life into my middle 90s like you are, I hope that that joy will never leave me. It sounds like you've, you've got it firmly in, in your soul and in your spirit, bud. Well, I had a lot of suffering in my life. I spent two years yeah. in the hospital when I was 20 with tuberculosis. Mm. I thought I was a victim. That was when, before television, I had radio newspapers and 110 degree heat in Phoenix. I, I really felt like a victim. However, when I look back at my life, I got more good out of tuberculosis because I didn't get a college education I got one in the hospital because I read everything I could for two years, and that gave me an education. Uh, if I'd been in college, I'd have been a beer drinker. I also realized that alcoholism was my second best gift. That got me into the world of real living. Hmm. Isn't that something how two diseases got you into the world of real living? Real living. AA was, it was, you couldn't beat the gift. You know, every time we, we go through a problem and we mm -hmm. complain about it, we realize we always get through it. How do yeah. we get through it? We have God's grace on our side. All we have to do is pray and say, please help me and do your work in the spiritual side of your life. And it always works out. The house is wired. Flip the damn switch, right? Some guy was telling me, moaning about how, how sick he was. And I said, look, don't keep on talking about how sick you are. You're going to die one day. We don't know when. But don't, you're not going to die tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I've never known anybody who's died because they went to too many AA meetings I or worked either. too much with newcomers. <laughs> in all the years yeah. I've been in AA... There are only a couple of guys that I look at and say they're real phonies. There aren't many. We got one guy, we call him the double dipper. He has a sobriety date for booze and a sobriety date for drugs. And he gives them both. And I think I laugh at him and I say, You shouldn't say that stuff. Keep it under your keep it under your hat. No yeah. one uses it, darn. Well, it sends the wrong message to newcomers, too, especially those who drank for a long time or used drugs alongside it. Yeah, I get that. It's just nonsense. Howard, I've well, enjoyed meeting you. Uh, this has been a wonderful experience for me. It's been wonderful for me, too, but I, I'm so appreciative of your doing this today. And I just want to tell you, I've got, I just want to say, Thank you so much. You're a remarkable man. I love you. And I appreciate the work that you do for alcoholics and have done for a very long time. You're a really, really extraordinary man. Well, thank you. You're very kind to say all of that generous, complimentary stuff. But Howard, you're a real gentleman. And I do love you. And I thank you for your goodness. Thanks, bud. You're terrific. Boy, am I glad to meet you. I'm glad to meet you, too. This is a God deal, you and I getting together. It's beautiful.
Well, my friends, that's it for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Bud S., for sharing his story, and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please leave a multi-star rating and review for the show on your podcast app? That'll help others find us. As the number of worldwide listeners grows, this podcast will be of greater help to more and more people. Oh, and I'd appreciate you taking a minute to show others how to listen to this podcast. Of course, you can listen to all of the interviews on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from this show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. <laughs>